Welcome to The Mend, a podcast about services and support for victims and survivors of crime, sponsored by the Center for Crime Victim Services here in Vermont. I am your host, Anna Nasset, and I host this bi-monthly podcast and show. Today on the show, I am thrilled to have my friend Jennifer Landhouse here from SPARC, the Stalking Prevention Awareness and Resource Center, um, to launch our new year of the show. And we're just so excited to talk about Stalking Awareness Month. So as we know, this show was look, created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concepts for victims and survivors of crime. We want to acknowledge our healing process and provide resources not only in our state of Vermont, but throughout the country that could benefit victims and survivors of crime as they begin to mend. I always want to start with a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe space to discuss these topics of healing. But that, with that in mind, we may occasionally hear a story related to crime discuss our mental health, or have other sensitive subject matter. We urge you to take care of yourself and listen at your own discretion. Jennifer brings over 25 years of experience as an educator and advocate on the issues of stalking, domestic violence, sexual assault, to her current position as the Director of Stalking Prevention Awareness Resource Center, SPARC. As Director, she oversees the development and implementation of multifaceted resources, programs, and publications on stalking, collaborates with national pro partners and provides robust trainings to criminal justice and victim service prevention. Jennifer has led the Spark Initiative since its founding at Equitus in 2017. Thank you so much for being here today, Jennifer, and thank you for all you do. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes. I mean, I know for me, obviously, this is my passionate subject of stalking, and I really look to someone like you and others working in this field for being why I sit here today. So thank you for all that you do. Um, as we begin to chat today, can you give me a little short overview and only if you're comfortable with how you were called into working into this field in the first place? It was <laughs> another funny story. It's a little bit of an accident. So I, my junior year in college um, was in a intro to counseling class. And one of uh, the folks in my small group was doing an internship at a crisis center for domestic violence and sexual assault victims, a battered women's shelter, essentially back in those days. And um, we were talking about where we would do internships the next year. Um, I'm old enough that you had to go look at the Career Resource Center at a binder <laughs> full of places that you flipped through to find a place to go. Me too. Um, and, <laughs> and I uh, saw this particular uh, organization. And so I went there um, and uh, interviewed with them, did an internship the fall of my senior year in college, um, and I fell in love with work. Um, and then in the spring, I did another internship, and then when I graduated, they hired me full-time. Um, so I was an advocate at that particular moment in time. I was not somebody who enjoyed public speaking, um, and they hired me and said, oh, and by the way, you're going to do public speaking. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I remember calling my fiance at the time and saying, nope, I'm going to quit. I can't do this. Um, and then I fell in love with that work as well. So amazing. Um, I think I was the same when someone asked me to first speak. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's <laughs> right. no way. <laughs> yeah. I remember crying on my first on my on my way to my first presentation. It was like 20 minutes uh, to a church group. And I thought, oh, there's no way. And now I'm like, can I have five days? Because I right. what we need to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm going to need at least five hours. Is that cool? <laughs> yeah. Great. Exactly. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that we have so much in common, and I love that we also have how we came over the hurdles of public speaking in common as well. So, um, as you know, as we know, but as for our listeners, this is Stalking Awareness Month is January. Um, and as I said, as a survivor, this is a very important month to me. 
and to millions of others. Um, can you share with us a brief history of how Stalking Awareness Month came to be? Absolutely. So in January of 2003, it was January 18th, 2003, um, Peggy Klinke was murdered by her um, abusive partner um, who had been stalking her. And her sister, uh, Debbie Riddle, after that, um, had seen um, someone from a national organization on a TV show talking about stalking, and she called that person up. Um, it was the director of the Old Stalking Resource Center at the time. And Debbie called that person up and said, I want things to change. And so that organization and Debbie worked together um, to petition some representatives in Congress to say, we need to pass Stalking Awareness Month and we need to start an endeavor that would train law enforcement and other criminal justice professionals on the issue of stalking. So Debbie was really the catalyst um, after her sister's death um, in pushing this issue forward and knowing that uh, Peggy would have wanted someone to do the same thing. Um, so she pushed that uh, effort forward. And then Debbie has been involved in um, Spark since its inception. She is one of the folks that does our graphic design work. Um, and she's, as you know, <laughs> an amazing uh, speaker and advocate uh, for this issue. So we're blessed to have her as part of the fight. We really are indeed. And if you listen to the very first season of um, the Mend podcast, Debbie, I interviewed her. Um, so it was probably like episode four or five. Um, if you if you feel like going back and um, I love Debbie. She, in fact, was I think the first person I texted once um, there was the sentencing for my case was I texted her and she was with her mom and she's just a really, really incredible, passionate person to do so much change and advocacy and good out of so much pain. And I think that's so much of what we do is right. turn that into how do we not have this happen for others? So, yeah. So we know a lot about stalking, but I don't want to assume that our listeners do. So let's talk about stalking. Um, can you share a little bit of what the definition is, how it, it can appear in someone's life and just how we can recognize these warning signs? Absolutely. So the definition that we use is that it's a pattern of behavior or what a lot of state statutes might refer to as a course of conduct um, that's directed at a specific person that would cause a reasonable person to either feel fear or emotional distress for their safety, for the safety of somebody in their life. And so one of the things that we oftentimes talk about is that, you know, society has kind of this perception of what stalking is. And it's usually somebody that you don't know who's dressed in black with binoculars across the street watching what you do. Um, and so one of the things that we oftentimes um, use to help people figure out what exactly is stalking besides that, you know, stereotypical surveillance behavior. And the framework that we find really helpful in the trainings that we do is a framework that was developed by uh, Dr. T.K. Logan out of the University of Kentucky. And she calls it the SLY framework, and it stands for surveillance, life invasion, interference through some kind of sabotage or attack, and intimidation. And one of the things that we have found is really breaking that framework down and describing the behaviors that happen. So for surveillance, like following somebody around, looking at their social media, um, inserting yourself into their friends and family, for life invasion, um, doing things like disrupting their work, showing up at their employment, things that I know from your story are very familiar. Um, and then interference um, through some kind of sabotage or attack. So um, that can be things like um, causing a public scene um, somewhere or trying to humiliate the victim. And then intimidation, so showing up certain places, giving victims certain looks, um, that factor of just being present at certain locations. 
So that framework we've found to be really helpful because what we know is that for many individuals who experience stalking, they don't necessarily identify that they're being stalked. If you would ask them, are you being harassed or stalked? Oftentimes you'll get an answer of no. Until you break down that framework and you ask about those specific behaviors and you say, well, is somebody looking at your social media? Is somebody showing up unwanted at your work? And then oftentimes there's this aha moment where those individuals are like, oh, yeah, that's been happening to me. And mm-hmm. so that framework is helpful for individuals who are experiencing stalking to be validated about, yes, what you're experiencing is a crime. It's not OK. Um, and it's also helpful for responders in understanding how to identify what stalking is. So that particular framework, I think, at least for me, you know, I've been doing this work for a really long time. And when Dr. Logan came up with that framework, there was this kind of aha moment for me as well, where I was like, oh, this is what we hear from the individuals that we work with all the time and puts it in a way, you know, in a framework that people can understand a little bit easier and in a way that validates the experiences of the individuals who experience stalking. Absolutely. And I think like you really hit it on the head, like so many people don't realize they're being stalked. Um, I had a colleague of mine, a fellow speaker colleague, and we were speaking one day on Zoom and he's like, can you stay on for a little bit longer? I'm like, yeah. He's telling me, he's like, so there was this woman, like she's come to some of my speeches and then like she moved across the country to Vegas to where I live and she's been showing up at my house. Is that stalking? It's like, yes, that is. (laughs) But we still, we do have that narrative of the story like mine, where it was a stranger and, you know, that's what media portrays all of this and that. But the reality is, as we know, is most people are stalked by somebody they know, whether it be a current or former partner, an acquaintance, you know, a colleague, whatever it might be. Um, And so I'm really passionate about using my story to shine a light on the reality of that's the majority of stalking. And I I guess for my question would be, can you speak to more of that typical stalking and the intersection of that to other violent crimes? Absolutely. So I think one of the places where we oftentimes miss the stalking behavior is how it intersects with intimate partner violence. So we see a lot of situations where there's intimate partner violence and that partner is really controlling. They're really jealous. They monitor everything a victim does. And a lot of times people chalk that up to the control that happens in a domestic violence situation. And yes, it is. And it's also stalking. But a lot of times what happens is people don't identify it as stalking until the victim is leaving the situation until the survivor's out on their own and then the offender is doing those things. But it's important to realize that when it's happening within the context of domestic violence and that relationship is still intact, it's stalking there too. And, you know, a lot of people say to me, well, what's the difference of what we call it, Jennifer? And one of the things that I always stress to folks is to remember that when you have intimate partner violence and stalking happening, you have an increased risk for a victim being harmed or killed by that individual. And so one of the things that we oftentimes help people understand is that identifying the stalking behavior in the context of intimate partner violence is really important. We also see that when it intersects with sexual violence. So we have a lot of offenders who will gather information about the person that they're targeting. They'll try to find out, you know, what um, kind of vulnerabilities they have, who their friends and family are, and they're likely to tell somebody about something that's going on. 
And they're oftentimes stalking within the context of the sexual assault crime or within the context of human trafficking. And oftentimes what we see across the country is people have built up their response to sexual assault or to domestic violence, and they haven't made the same efforts with stalking because they don't think it happens as often or because um, you know, they don't identify it when it comes in. And so one of the things that we really try to stress to people is to understand that when this behavior is happening, it's really important to understand that it's stalking behavior. You know, our theme every January is always know it, name it, stop it. <laughs> Which sounds yep. really simple, but the know it, name it is really hard. <laughs> and so, so true. Trying to, trying to get folks to understand that this is stalking behavior and we need to be intervening, we need to be naming it, we need to be safety planning, most importantly, with the individuals who are experiencing it. I think that's one of the things that um, we can spend more time and effort on across the country. And I think it's a conversation that needs to be had um, not only with individuals who are experiencing the behavior, but with responders as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think that I know from my own personal experience and from countless victims who email me, um, it's always that thing of everyone tells me it's not that bad. Until until I am physically harmed, it's not that bad. And yeah. I think there's so much education that needs to be done around, well, is a psychological crime, in my mind, as bad as a physical yeah. one like there is the the everlasting impact i've met people over the years um i just think of this one woman in my old town in washington who was stalked 30 years ago for six months and still will never have a social media presence so we have to look at what is that long long impact and take yeah. that part, part seriously and then also i know when i'm presenting i always come back to the statistic from you all that is at 76% of female or femicides, so females murdered by their former current partner, there's an element of stalking in the year prior. And that yeah. like that that's the one that I'm just like, look, people. It's here. It's here. Right. If you, you you take this seriously, we can save lives. Yeah. And I think, you know, within that same element, we do a lot of um safety planning for stalking victims, and people have a tendency to default to the like tactical, physical safety planning, like get a dog and make sure somebody walks you back and forth, all which is really important. But we miss sometimes the psychological and emotional safety planning and how important that is. And that's something that we do really easily in domestic violence and sexual cases. And we don't necessarily think about that in stalking cases and that long lasting impact and that hypervigilance that oftentimes is developed as a result of the stalking it's really important that we're making sure survivors are connected with somebody who can help them navigate that impact. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I was talking to a, a male victim here in my state the other day, who's a professional in the community, this and that, and um, working on getting his protection order and just, just offering him some encouragement and support. Cause I don't do direct advocacy. Um, but, and he said to me, he's like, well, I always feel this way. And I just, kind of stopped and I was like I can't say you won't yeah. but so that psychological safety planning and emotional safety planning I think is so important and something that we're we're still trying to obviously really figure out yep I 100% agree yeah so what would you just kind of you know what would you advise someone who is being stopped to do yeah, that's a broad question right? <laughs> I think the first thing that I always say to folks is to trust your gut because there's a lot of, oh, maybe I'm blowing this out of proportion, or is this really happening? 
Um, or if individuals reach out to some kind of responder, sometimes it's minimized or dismissed. And then victims or survivors feel like, okay, maybe this isn't what I think it is. And so trusting your gut would be the first thing that I would say. And the next thing that I would say is to figure out where your support system is. Is that friends? Is it family? Are there advocacy agencies that can be of assistance in these particular situations? Um, and then what happens in a lot of these particular cases is the onus is kind of put on the person who's being stalked to help gather that evidence. Um, and so keeping good documentation, we have some documentation logs on our website in English and in Spanish with some instructions on how to keep that documentation. That kind of documentation can be really important because it's oftentimes left to the survivor to help gather that information in that stalking case. And so having really good documentation can be helpful. But I think as we're looking at the, you know, that particular option, understanding that for some individuals, it's not safe to access the criminal justice system. It's not uh, something that they want to do or that they feel validated in doing. So finding other support systems like an advocacy agency or somebody else that can assist in those particular situations, I think is really important because it's going to be a long haul. It's not going to be an easy endeavor. And so having that support throughout that process is really important. absolutely I know that's it's always really one of the most challenging parts is understanding that you have to be your own detective you have to be your own investigator um I know for myself personally like there was some I kind of flipped it into finding empowerment within that because mm-hmm. at the time everything else was yeah. out of my control everything else was scary um everything was frightening so this is the one thing I had control of was documenting things. Um, and I know that doesn't work for everyone, obviously, but that was for me how I was able to do that. But it is really challenging. And I know I also um, oftentimes, I'm, you know, because I get hear people are like, well, you know, my family's like, this isn't a big deal. This isn't, this isn't anything you're overreacting, whatever it might be. And I always am like, send them the Spark website, stockingawareness.org, um, because it's so good with information to educate those people around you so that you can build that support system. And it is unfortunate that we have to do that work as the victim and survivor, but I will always defer to stockingawareness.org because you just have so many great tools to educate community. Um, And I feel like that education component helps build that support. Yeah, it does. And and I think you're exactly right. That's the hard part is it shouldn't have to fall on a survivor or victim to gather their own evidence or to help spread awareness or help build their community. Um, but it oftentimes does. And so finding some of that information that can help empower them um, as they're going through that particular journey can be helpful. Yeah. Because knowledge is power. I feel like when right. we have more knowledge, we have more tools, we have more strength to be able to, exactly. you know, go in and say like, no, you're going to help me to the criminal yeah. justice or whatever it yeah. is. So Kind of following through with that, what resources are out there for victim service and criminal justice professionals? So for our advocates, our cops, our lawyers, prosecutors, what tools are out there for them? So we've tried really hard. Um, your segue into our website was perfect. <laughs> that. Um, on our website, which is stockingawareness.org, we have tried to develop tools that um, individuals who are doing this work, so victim advocates, law enforcement, prosecutors, et cetera, can use in their everyday work with survivors. One of the things that when we started Spark, I was really passionate about was, you know, training is awesome, but what happens a lot of times is people go to training 
training. And then in two months, when you say, you know, tell me about the stalking training you went to, they were like, uh, do I remember that? <laughs> right. So having the ability to take um, the tools that they need to move forward in the work that they're doing. And so on our website, so for instance, for advocacy folks, we have um, safety plans, we have information on documentation logs, we have risk assessments, et cetera, things that they can use when they're working their work because a lot of folks don't have training or background on stalking. They may be, you know, I myself was in the domestic violence and sexual assault world for a couple of years before stalking was even mentioned. And so to have access to some of those tools um, that we have available on our on our website. And then and then the training aspect. You know, if you look at the training that lots of folks receive and you talk to individuals, you know, how much time did you get to spend on stalking when you went through your advocacy training or how much time was spent in the police academy talking about stalking and people get kind of get this deer in headlights look where they're like, uh, I don't think we covered it. And so to have access to that information and then use it to increase the ability of everybody in that organization. You know, one of the things that um, is kind of my um, like passion and my soapbox is always that victims shouldn't luck into a good response. You shouldn't have to rely on being lucky that you happen to get the one person who understands stalking when you made your report. And it should be across the board, no matter who you talk to or what agency you make contact with, that person should be able to connect you with resources, should have a really good understanding of stalking and should know. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. A lot of times you have to luck into finding that person who's really passionate within that organization. And that's where I really want to see the change across the country is to trying to build the response so that no matter where a survivor intersects with the system, that they're met with the support and the resources that they need. And I think that unfortunately doesn't happen. And what happens in a lot of places is, you know, if you're lucky enough to find the one person who's been to training or who understands it or who has a passion for these particular issues, then you're in good hands. If you don't happen to find that person, then it's frustrating and even, um, even harder to reach some kind of resolution in these particular cases. And so that's always my soapbox that you know, when we can finally change the response to make sure that everybody's met with the same passion and the same, um, you know, that same response from folks who are really um, going to dedicate themselves to helping the survivor, then we can say that we've made a difference. Absolutely. I, I am going to probably start to include that victims shouldn't luck into a response. And, yeah. and also, I mean, taking into account like I know for myself like it's always weird I'm always acknowledging the privilege I have of being you know a white woman who didn't date the person he was already known in our community yeah. um, I held a position of power as a business owner and I have this slide now at the end of my presentation I'm like what if anything was different of this what if I was a different gender what if I was a different race what if I was homeless what if what if I had been married to him um, just any any possible scenario if anything was different would I be sitting here right now? Right. And I'm going to say probably not. And I did luck into having the most amazing cop when I first walked in. But yeah, I think that's one of my biggest things. My soapbox is I can't be the exception. This needs to be the right. standard. Exactly. 
exactly. Um, so yeah, sorry. That now we're getting soapboxy. I love a good soapbox. <laughs> I love a good soapbox moment. <laughs> One of the things that I think is difficult and why, you know, it was somebody like me who was able to get this exceptional sentence in my case was because of the privilege I had. Um, and we are still very challenged culturally to take stalking seriously as a crime. And I know that we and I have both dedicated our lives to this, but what hurdles do you see in society and media portrayal of stalking that we need to dispel? <laughs> so many. <laughs> so many. <laughs> you know, I, I jokingly say in dreaming, but you know, the, the plot of every single romantic comedy out there is you fall in love with somebody, you become obsessed with them, you pursue them until you convince them that you're this amazing person. And that pursual and that surveillance behavior results in them suddenly realizing what an amazing person you are and you fall in love and everybody lives happily ever after. Yep. Which is a stalking scenario. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's so frustrating that oftentimes that's so romanticized um, and that, you know, our media portrayals, the, even the word stalking, you know, people say, well, I'm stalking your Facebook or it, that particular, you know, as people look at that particular word and they use it lightly and the, the way that it's portrayed in the media is really detrimental to survivors. It's detrimental to communities because it's taken so lightly, like it's a flippant thing, like it's no big deal. And so I think one of the things that's really a great place for conversations, especially with young people is to say, what kind of messages are you receiving about romantic behavior? You know, I always joke with my own kids that they went to high school and they had this really supposedly great education and they went on to college and, and I'll say to them, how much time did they spend talking to you about like what a healthy relationship looks like? And they're like, come on, really, come on. And that's one of the most important decisions that happens in your life about how do you choose a romantic partner? What is, a, you know, how the friendships even look like? And we don't spend yep, time absolutely. with that with our young people, with adults, et cetera. And so trying to challenge that is really difficult. It really is. I mean, I know for myself before all of this started for me, you know, over a decade ago, like I would have thrown around the word stalking because I didn't yeah. know any better. And it's always interesting to me now when like a friend of mine or somebody does that in front of me, they're like, oh yeah, I was stalking their Facebook. And then they, they have that look of like deer in headlights. They're like, oh, I'm so oh. sorry. I'm like, that's okay. But now, you know like yeah. you know it takes those moments so that we can <clears throat> correct our own behavior and right. understand more of what that healthy relationship looks like how when we use that joking language it just perpetuates the problem and okay. yeah and also media as well like I was just chatting with someone a friend of mine last evening who had watched the new stalking documentary on Netflix yeah. which I have not watched I cannot watch stuff like that mm -hmm. um but it really was eye-opening for them. They're like, oh my gosh, like this really helped me understand this crime. So I thought that was good. I was like, yeah, I can't yeah. watch this. But, right. but it was like, they just like kind of stopped me and they're like, can I talk to you about this? I was like, yeah, that's fine. I'm in a space where you can. But I also sometimes I'm like, no, not yeah. right now. I'm just having fun. Um, but I think, you know, looking at those things and like I said, I have not seen that show. So I don't know how well it did or did not do. But um, I'm liking, you know, yeah. shows like Wednesday that just came out where yeah. they actually are doing a better job of yeah. standing up to stalking. Um, yeah. So, I mean, kind of as we wind down today, 
Um, what are some of the words that you would offer to a victim of stalking who is listening today or a friend of somebody who's being stalked? What is something that you would want to share with them? There's a couple of things. I think the first one is um, believe in yourself and in your experience and, and don't let anybody try to talk you out of your feelings and your emotions. Um, I think the second one is to make sure that you connect with somebody who can support you, um, whether that's friends or family, advocacy agencies, etc. Nobody deserves to have to be constantly looking over their shoulder. Everyone deserves to live in an environment where things are safe. And finding that support system, I think, is really important. And sometimes it's just, it's not as easy as we would like it to be. Sometimes you reach out and you're not met with the help that you so rightly deserve, but continue to try to advocate for yourself and find that person that can help advocate for you. Because I think so often survivors feel really alone. I think that's why they reach out to, to you, to Spark, et cetera, is to try to find that connection. And just like you, Spark doesn't offer direct victim services. And so we're oftentimes trying to connect folks with in their local community. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes they're not met with a response that we would like them to be met with. And so trying to find that person that can be a good connection. But most of all, um, you know, believe in yourself and your experience. Um, don't let anybody invalidate that for you. Um, your feelings are valid and you deserve to live in a space that isn't full of constantly looking over your shoulder. You deserve to live in a safer space. Absolutely. I do a lot of work with the Start by Believing campaign. And it means start by believing ourselves as well. Like right. you know, we, we generally talk about that as if somebody discloses to you to believe them, but sometimes we need to just believe ourselves. Right. And yeah. I know one thing that like I I know I hear this a lot and I'm sure you do too. People will reach out and they're like, well, I see like there's the domestic and sexual violence center, like the advocacy center, but it doesn't say stalking. So I don't think that they handle that. And I know I felt that way years ago. I was like, well, yeah. but that's not for me. They don't handle that. And right. I think that's a big thing to realize that they do. They yeah. can. They might not always have the tools. Right. But that's why we send them to Spark. Because <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Um, one of your colleagues, Dana, always says, and stalking. Like, we're yes. in here too. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree. I know a lot of folks get frustrated by the fact that they might not be met with the same response as individuals who experience domestic violence and sexual assault. But it's also the continuum of education with those particular agencies as well, right? So hopefully they're, um, you know, when folks reach out to those advocacy agencies, they're met with a good response. They're met with folks who understand that stalking is part of that, those crimes that they should be working on. But it's, it's an effort across the country to try to elevate people's response and to get them to realize that individuals who experience stalking deserve the same rights and to safety and, you know, holding offenders accountable as individuals who are experienced domestic violence or sexual assault. Absolutely. And I mean, as we wind out, I think like as victims and survivors, we shouldn't have to do that legwork, but right. that is sometimes often what I will do with someone I'm like, you know, if you can print this out or have this link, when you go to the advocacy center, when you go to the cops, have the sheet from Spark, like that right there is a big thing yeah. to have that documentation log to print out criminal justice response, advocacy response. Like I've done that with several people yeah. and that's, you see kind of, I did that here with a, a friend who needed some help. And like, I saw the cop kind of be like, huh, okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> but what was really good too was that the cop in this situation was the Vermont State Police um having no idea who I was while I was in the room did like everything I could have ever recommended in response and it was really neat to see that because years ago I had to go to the Vermont State Police they did not have a good response so that was really amazing to see like everything done the way we would recommend it without right. having any clue who I was, who <laughs> anything was. I was like, all right. We're like, it was that first kind of like, oh, I got to see evidence of the work that we're doing yep. um, in action. And that was really cool. So that's fantastic. Yeah. That's what we want for everyone. Yeah. And so this month of January um, is a great time to educate people. And so I would just kind of say like, what makes Stalking Awareness Month so important to you? Um, I would love to hear that as we close down. You know, we we say in, in the office, we wish every month was Stalking Awareness Month, and we think it is, um, but January gives us really that opportunity to highlight what's available for services to help people understand what stalking is. We've got a ton of resources on our website. Um, if you just click on the awareness button on stalkingawareness.org, um, every year we do a campaign for Stalking Awareness Month. We have social media posts that you can share every single day. We've got letters to the editor, et cetera. We're one office and we have a staff of four folks who work full time and we sit in Equitas, which is a broader office. And so we have access to their amazing staff as well. But really it's just a small group of folks who are trying to elevate this particular issue. And so anybody who elevates the issue as well, who helps educate folks, who provides resources, et cetera, is a huge lift um, for that particular effort. And so one of the things that we really like is when we see uh, folks sharing posts or having conversations um, and directing people to resources and really getting to the point where people understand um, that stalking awareness is really important, not only for their work as responders, but most importantly for survivors. Absolutely. I mean, I think like it's the easiest thing to do is to share a right. post and you all do a tremendous job with your campaign. Oh, and you. like when you share that post, you have no idea who's going to see that yep. and go, oh, that's what's happening to me. Oh, exactly. this is somebody I can turn to in my community, in my friend group and reach out to and have some support and learn some new things. So, so to anybody like follow Spark online, um, they do a great job and just share their posts because you don't know. You could save a life with that. Um, so thank you so much. Um, oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's such an honor. You do amazing work, Anna. And thank you for the voice that you uh, use to elevate this particular issue. We're so grateful for it. Well, I'm so grateful for you all. And when I get to partner with you and just the work that we're doing, and I just definitely want to give a shout out to Debbie Riddle for starting Stalking Awareness Month. And just, you know, we just keep, keep going, keep going, yep. keep going so that we can create that change. So for everyone listening, please go to Spark to learn all about Stalking Awareness Month and the work being done there. It's stalkingawareness.org. Follow them. And just thank you so much for being here today, Jennifer. Um, yeah. And for everyone listening, uh, my name is Anna Nassett, and it was such an honor to be with you today. You can always um, email me if you have questions or subjects that you would like me to cover. My email is Anna at standupresources.com. Be well, and thank you for joining us on The Mend. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or feedback. We love hearing new topic ideas from listeners and watchers as well. 
Thank you for listening to The Mend and be well.